1: Welcome to the Small Business Administration Award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Wednesday, December 6th. I hope you're having a great day out there working hard, wrapping it up. We've got about two weeks left until everyone's going to take time off for the holidays. Are you getting the stuff done for your end of the year? I am going to hold you accountable. We have a fantastic show for you today. First up, we have Maria Baltalzi. She is one of the producers of the Survivor TV show and has all sorts of intimate knowledge of the show that she will share with us, but we're also going to talk about happiness and a whole lot of important stuff like loving yourself first. It's a great conversation. I'm excited for you to meet Maria. After that, Gene Kim will be with us in the thought leadership segment, talking about his new book on wiring. It's a busy show. We're going to go ahead and get started right now. Very excited to introduce my first guest. Her name is Maria Baltazi. She is a happiness explorer. I bet I'm almost 99% sure that you have seen her work on television. She was one of the first producers of the TV show survivor during year one and up through, I guess, year seven or eight, somewhere around. And then she won an Emmy award for her work. She then, after how many years was it, Maria, you were there. I've seen seven. I've seen
1: 10 i I have done uh seven seasons over the course of about five and a half years,
2: okay, and after that she took off around the world and went and visited all of the continents. She is a member of both the Producers and Directors' Guild of America, a fellow national member uh, and this is where it gets interesting of the Explorers Club and she has learned from the greats in so many different mindfulness. Exercises and beliefs. She has gotten an MFA and also a PhD. But I think more interesting is the great leaders that she has studied with, including issues like neuroplasticity, which you know I'm obsessed with. Anyway, she has a new book out talking about all of this and her amazing journey. Maria, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Oh, thank you so much. I'm doing very well. How are you?
2: I am well. All right. Take a shot at happiness how to write direct and produce the life you want let's start there does everyone deserve a happy life
1: absolutely it's it's even as as an american it's even seated in our declaration of independence the 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 right you know the, the to the pursuit of happiness
2: all right why are so many people unhappy it's a constitutional right damn it why are
1: you still unhappy <laughs> I think we uh, put our priorities in in uh, the wrong place. You know, we put um, wanting to find happiness outside of ourselves. When we have the right job, when we have the the right relationship, when we have the the uh, big house, you know, they're all external. And happiness is an inside job, and it it takes a- attention and consistency to create that happiness and people aren't really doing the work or they don't know how to do the work. You know, we go to school to learn to be doctors and lawyers and things like that, but we're not taught how to live qualitative lives.
2: Your book though, does offer happiness essentials. Is that what we're calling them?
1: Yes. They're happiness essentials. Ten, what right? I did eight,
2: eight. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I got all of the numbers wrong. All right. It's all good. Give me one of the happiness essentials.
1: The foundational one is faith. And when I say faith, it's it's not that I'm telling you what to believe. It's how you define it for yourself, whether it's a religion or a philosophy or communing in nature that 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 you have something that you believe in that is supporting you, that is guiding you. And I think that that is huge to have something bigger than yourself.
2: What made a great survivor contestant? Did the best survivor contestant have faith? Were the religious ones more likely to win?
1: Uh, No, no, I wouldn't say Richard Hatch in season one was a, uh, was a religious person. I don't know what the guy
2: who went to jail, right?
1: Right. Exactly. (laughs) I I don't know what his spirituality was, but, um, no, uh, all, all kinds. Tina Wesson, who won the second season, very faith based. So it it depends on how you play the game.
0: All right. is Is faith something that you have to find or can it just be there from birth? If you've been
2: raised in a religious family, uh, is faith something you have to work for or can it just be there?
1: Well, I think for some it is there, uh, and then others have to seek it out to cultivate it. You cultivate faith like you go to the the gym, you know, you go to the gym to get that six pack and you go to, you know, you get to to have, you know, a muscular body and you go to uh, a church or a community to create, you know, you go to a spiritual gym, if you will you 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 study you study the things that that will will inspire you to have faith.
0: All right. Do you want to comment on your faith and how it's helped you? Uh, what do you have faith in?
1: I faith for me is my bedrock. Everything begins with my my belief in in God. I believe that there is a source greater than myself that is, is guiding me. And it's something that I, I feel has always had the seeds of it being there. And as I was becoming more of an adult, it's something that, that I just found myself seeking out more and and more. And it's just, um, it's just such such a strong component to my happiness, which is why I write about it. And it's the, one, it's the very first happiness essential that I write about in, in my book because I feel like it's that foundational. And then after that comes love, you know, having, having love for yourself having love for others, and then health. And when I say health, it's three-dimensional. It's it's the whole being. It's your mind, body, and spirit that, that you are taking care of.
2: All right. You jumped through a lot of stuff there. Uh, let's go back to love for a second. Are you referring to spouse love or partner love, or family love, all of the above is one uh, enough to, or
1: uh, walk all us of through the love ab- a little bit? Uh, all of the above, yeah, i I feel that we need to be one hundred percent accountable, responsible for ourselves. and And I think a lot of that is is based in loving yourself first. And when you love and care for yourself first, then you can take care of others and have have loving relationships whether it's with a spouse or a child or a friend or the world itself, you know, having a love for life.
2: Let's switch gears for a little bit. Maria, we'll come back to the book. I want to ask some survivor silliness questions. First of all, what is a producer? I don't get it. I understand what a director does. They yell cut. But what is the producer do are they is it simply the people who raise the money, but then who hires the director? I'm so confused help me with under- and then an executive producer versus an associate producer I- I'm so lost help me
1: well, an executive producer is the overall vision of the show they they're they're the captain of the ship, if you will and the, the definition of a producer can be a bit fluid, and, and it's understandable that there's confusion around what that is. Yeah, uh, a producer, if you are in film, and especially an executive producer, is often the one who is finding the money, finding, <coughs> finding the funding. Whereas in television, it is often uh, the producer often the writer. Uh, they, when you are doing a show like Survivor, you're the you're the one who is the leader. When you are shooting, you are telling cameras where they are going, you what stories we're following. You're doing the interviews, and then once you're done shooting, you're then taking the uh, the material that that you brought and and bringing at, that into the edit room, which. You know, from you know, my standpoint of my journey, you know, doing Survivor was just such a a, a great place to look at human nature. You know, it, it was its its own little microcosm of of society.
2: In what way? What are some of the things that you're referring to? What jumps to mind when you when you say that?
1: Well, the biggest takeaway from Survivor that I I still hold with me today is that you don't know what you are capable of doing until you are in that situation. You don't if you have never been on a remote island without your creature comforts and family vying for life changing money you don't know how you are going to react in that situation. And I used to do the very last episode and time and again, I would hear the survivor saying, well, this isn't me. This is me just playing a game. And it's just, it is so you, those are your thoughts, words, and actions that it has to be you. You just have not been in this situation to to have this shade of your personality come out. And that's, that's what I have taken into my life and, and into my book. And it's, it's that you don't know what you are capable of achieving in life. You don't know the level of happiness that, that you can create for yourself until you go out and really try and do that.
0: I love that. Very, very well said, Maria. What are some of the,
2: uh, reaching down into the mud and pulling themselves out? Some of the greatest moments that you saw of personal, uh, success and personal wherewithal. Then what are some of
0: the, most despicable, horrible things that you saw. Tell us a little bit about both extremes.
1: Well, I I think the most wonderful moment that I saw was um, during season two in Australia. And it was... Late in the game, when the two tribes were now one, and that particular day we were having a strength challenge, and it was for a re- reward of hamburger, hot dogs, and sleeping in a warm cot that night. So at that point in the game, there was a lot of motivation to want, it, want to be that winner. And so that challenge went on until almost uh, nightfall and finally we had a winner they went off to go have their their food reward and then I went with the contestants to go back to to camp and as we were going back to camp we were just hit with a deluge of rain which by the time we got back to their camp um, it had passed and what the contestants found was the tent that they had built in a dry riverbed was hit by a flash flood and now it was a torrent of river <laughs> of water and there was there was virtually nothing left for them and it's now almost nightfall they don't have a shelter they're hungry they're tired and it just seen their camp washed away just broke their spirit and they just sat in the sand and they huddled up next to each other and then in that moment one of the contestants who was elizabeth hasselbeck said oh my gosh it's thanksgiving and the game completely stopped There was no alliances, no talk of who was getting voted off. And they just spontaneously went one by one and said what they were grateful for, that they were grateful for the fish hook they found. They were grateful that they had taken their fleeces with them to the challenge. They were grateful for each other. And what that showed me was that you could have almost everything taken away from you, and still find something to be grateful for. And that kind of gratitude gives you hope, which is huge when it comes to your overall happiness. And it's something that I write about in my book.
0: Excellent. And something despicable that you saw. (sighs) Yeah.
1: I would say, I, I try not to dwell on that stuff, so I don't have a lot of stories that, that uh, are readily coming to mind. I just don't really think in that direction. I, I think the, the biggest shock was in, um, in the Thailand season when, when Helen Glover thought that she, she was part of the Final Four and she thought that she had, was, had uh, an alliance with the group and they ended up by voting her out. So she thought she was going to go to the final four with a set of people and then they ended up by voting her out. And that was really, really hard on her. That was really tough on her. You know, I, I tended to, to see, to look for things that, that were in the realm of, uh, being positive, being uplifting.
0: I love that
2: about you. That's awesome. Maria, how did you become a survivor producer? What was your career like prior to that? In other words, I view that as a very entrepreneurial thing to do. How does one set oneself up to become producer of a major TV phenomenon?
1: Well, at the time that I was hired, I, I was already a producer doing adventure and they had already hired, uh, three other producers and they, they were all male, and they wanted a fourth producer, and they wanted a female, feeling that that would just have a different dynamic when doing interviews and, and getting stories. And the other male producers knew me and recommended me because they, they knew that I was already out in the world working in the elements, and, and I, I could probably tough it out.
0: Okay. What were some of the other shows you had worked on?
1: Uh, I had done a lot. I was doing a, a, a variety of wildlife shows. So I was shooting in Africa or in Australia. So it, it they, they weren't shows that you would know the name of, but they were mostly wildlife stories.
2: All right. Tell us about your... Fundraising your seven thousand five hundred mile charity <laughs> walk. Why are we laughing?
1: Well, it, it's 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 it, it's a laugh of of pleasure because it's something that I really love to do. I have this ability to walk distance. I must have been a Maasai warrior in another life, and. I can just um, walk and walk and walk. And my charity walks began when um, the, the survivor winner of Africa, Ethan Zone, came down with cancer. And he was a spokesperson for Livestrong, who was a sponsor of the uh, New York Marathon that year and my mother was also a cancer survivor so I wanted to be supportive of Ethan and honor my mother and do something useful with this natural ability to walk and I asked Ethan if he could hook me up to be a fundraiser in in the New York Marathon which was my first marathon And I didn't sign up until late August sometime. So I had a very short window of time to train to walk that distance. And I did the New York Marathon. And then after that, I did Los Angeles, which is my home city. And then I found out when I was doing Los Angeles that there was the 2,500th anniversary of the original marathon taking place in Greece. So I had to do that because I am of a Greek background. And it was there that I found out that I could do one on every, sub, uh, on every continent. And I just love the idea of being able to fundraise on every continent. It just seemed like a, a really great goal. So I spent the next five years uh, doing that. And the thing about walking and walking when you have a purpose If you are a runner, there is something called the runner's high and that, that, um, runner's high is, is something that washes over you. It's a euphoric feeling. Uh, you just feel very good. And when you volunteer, when you help something, there is a a similar effect that happens to you and it's called, and, and it's called a helper's high. So that is also something that the Dalai Lama calls, which is uh, being wisely selfish, meaning by helping others, which I was doing through the marathon, I was helping myself. And that's also one of the things that I talk about in, in my book that, that, you know, when you have a gift, and then that's part of gratitude, you know, when you have a gift, paying that forward and how that is in, in, in service to both that person and yourself.
0: I love that. Very, very well said. Thank you. All right. We have time for one more
2: of the foundational or happiness essentials. Uh, we've gone through one, two, and three. Give us another one. We have time for one more, please.
1: Well, I think um, I think gratitude is a big one, which you know I've 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 been talking about yeah you know, the the Thanksgiving story and then the the helpers high. I think gratitude. Yeah, you know, there's a large body of research that that supports how gratitude helps your overall
0: happiness. Yes. Well, it's hard to be depressed when you realize that you're there are people a lot worse off than you
1: and well, it's not even looking at that 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 comparison. I mean, I would take that out of the equation. It's not that you're comparing yourself to anything. It's that that you are realizing what you have and being grateful for that you know being grateful that you have good health being grateful that you are sleeping in a warm bed being grateful that you have people that love you that's that's the real gratitude for me is 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 in realizing that that you have so much and you know there's a story about oprah where somebody comes to her home and they bring her uh, a, a bouquet of flowers and she finds a vase for it and she puts it into a prominent place and she talks about how beautiful the the arrangement is and the colors and she's just giving so much attention to these flowers so much appreciation to the person that, that gave it to her. And the person was a little bit mystified and said, Oprah, why so much attention over these flowers? And then Oprah looks around her room and she smiles and she said, how do you think I got all this? It's by appreciating what you have, what you, when, what you appreciate, you know, the things that you appreciate that you have increase.
0: Very well said. Maria, how do we find out more? Follow online.
2: Get a copy of the book.
1: You can find the book anywhere. Uh, uh at anywhere you can order books, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, Goodreads. Um, you can find it on my website, which is my name, Maria Baltazzi.com. You can find me on Instagram, uh, same name, Facebook.
2: All right. Fantastic. What are you watching on TV right now? What's the the cool thing that you see on TV these days? What are you binging?
1: The... Most recent thing that I was binging was Citadel, which I just, I love, I just love a good action adventure series or film.
2: What is Citadel? What is that one?
1: Um, boy, it's a, it's a very complex, it's a very complex story. Uh, it's, it's basically the story of, um, two, two people who are undercover that really love each other, but yet they're pitted against each other, uh, as they are going out to find the bad guys and basically save the world. My goodness. Yeah.
2: James Bond versus Mrs. Bond.
1: Yeah. Kind of Mr. And Mrs. Yeah.
2: Mr. And Mrs. (laughs) Smith. I liked that one. Right, right,
1: right, right. Exactly.
2: Maria, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for uh, helping us get happy and I hope a lot of you buy the book and read it and get happy for the holiday season. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to continue the show and introduce another great guest. This is going to be amazing. Please welcome Gene Kim. to the show he is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author and the founder and CTO of tripwire Wow pretty impressive he is also <laughs> author of he's either six or seven books I may be counted wrong because he has a new one just out called wiring the winning organization liberating our Collective greatness through slowification simplification and amplification Gene welcome how are you doing?
3: Uh, Jim, I'm doing great, and uh, thank you for that uh, kind introduction, and uh, so happy to be here.
2: Is this six or seven
3: book? Yeah, I think it's uh, six by some counts, seven by others. Yeah, I think uh, I'll go with six. How do you
2: get different counts? Do you have different numbers of fingers on each hand or something?
3: Uh, There's one book that uh, I wasn't the lead author on. Yeah, so I guess seven is just as accurate as six, but I'm proud of uh, all of them, and uh, definitely proud of uh, uh, this latest book, which is uh, probably the most... uh, Intellectually challenging thing I've ever worked on But also the most intellectually rewarding So uh, it's been an incredible adventure Tell us about it, what is it about? You know, uh, so it's a book that was Co-written by uh, Dr. Stephen Spears, So he's at the MIT Sloan School of Business And uh, so it was this amazing Uh combined effort, so I've spent 23 years studying high-performing technology organizations, uh, and that started back when I was a CTO founder of a company called Tripwire, as you had uh, mentioned, and uh, so my world has been software, uh, whereas uh, Dr. Steven Spear, his world has been in industrial uh, systems hardware, he's probably most famous for writing the uh, uh, most widely read Harvard Business Review article of all time called Decoding the DNA of the production system. And we set out on this quest to understand what is in common between great technology organizations, great industrial organizations, uh, great engineering and R&D organizations. And our conclusion is that they're are, there are all incomplete expressions of a far greater whole, uh, that uh, they are common principles that span all of these organizations and that it all comes down to how leaders wire their organizations. And I guess uh, to really uh, boil down the big aha moment for me is that, you know, we can, uh, in these high performing organizations, leaders create systems that fully liberate everyone's full creativity and problem solving capabilities, uh, which is the exact opposite of, I think, so many situations that maybe some of our friends have been in that are trapped in systems that somehow constrain or extinguish fully everyone's full creativity and and capabilities uh, within the organization. Uh, Does that resonate with you? well
2: let me understand some things first what does wire mean is that the culture is that the structure is that the organizational chart i don't know what the word wire means when we talk about people
3: that is such a great question yeah and i think when we talk about wiring we mean it quite literally because uh in manufacturing, in uh, electronic circuits, in mechanical systems, in uh, plumbing, you know what circuits do is uh, we take uh, something that is uh, we have in an abundance and we get it to where it's needed. And uh, organizations are the same way. So Winston Churchill has this great quote: "We shape our buildings, and thereafter they shape us." Uh, so too it is with organizations. We create the social wiring and thereafter it shapes us. Uh, Can I give you just a, a, a very specific example? Please, please. I love examples. Oh, fantastic. So a friend of mine, he's in a large mobile telco and one of the top initiatives for the year was to present a simple checkbox to their 20, 30 million customers and so they can opt in to a $5 a month service, you know, so it's email or watching movies. The problem is that uh, to get this done requires uh, work from 40 different teams, it requires daily war room meetings, it requires a CEO minus uh, one support, uh, it's going to take about a year to do, $28 million, and most people think it has less than a 1 in 5 chance of succeeding, and that's because the last two times they tried it, <laughs> it didn't work. And so here is an example of an organization that is wired the wrong way, that uh, somehow this, you know, potentially, you know, should be a very simple task, you know, is it's impossible to get this work across the organization because the cost of coordination is so high. And so the thesis of our book uh, is that what great software organizations do, what great manufacturing organizations do like Toyota, what great um, organizations with industrial safety do is they all wire their organizations so that everybody has what they need when they need it in the format they need it and they're talking to all the right people at the right time uh, versus you know, my poor friend, right, where no one's able to get what they need <laughs> when they need it in the right format uh, and they're having to talk to everybody all the time to even get small things done. Uh, does that resonate with you?
2: Yeah, who's responsible for that? How does that happen?
3: <laughs> I
2: don't have a guy
3: yeah. in my company doing that yeah in fact uh this is a great question and our I think an uncomfortable conclusion is that it is the leader that is ultimately responsible I'm busy uh, I'm busy uh, exactly so maybe you know I might have a friend who might want to delegate that problem away to maybe the VP of uh, uh of wiring and the uncomfortable truth is that you know this is solely the responsibility of that leader and uh a mentor of mine Dr. Ron Westrom uh he uh, has studied uh, industrial safety, aviation safety, and uh, he uh, quoted this World War II academic scholar, uh, and he said, um, you know, if you have a dope at the top, you will have or soon will have dopes all the way down. And maybe that's maybe not the most charitable thing to say, but it really um, resonated with me because it is really the leader who sets the norms of the organization that creates the right wiring. so that. Uh, people can do what they need to do uh, with low coordination costs. They can tap the full expertise of the organization and really uh, tap all those things that you talked about. You know, maybe people might recognize it as culture or process improvement or,
0: um, you know, uh, psychological safety. And we're saying that these are all those are all parts of uh, this greater whole. OK. All right. So if it's my responsibility as the boss, how do I go about it,
2: measure it, understand it? Again, I kind of feel like I'm too busy to take on something new like this. Uh, how do I go about that? What do I do, Gene?
3: Yeah. You know, so we have a, one of, we have two very simple vignettes that I think give a uh, very, they're very uh, powerful because they explain what happens across all these complicated domains. Uh, and one of them is Steve and Gene moving a couch. And so uh, you might think uh, that it sounds just like all broad work, no knowledge work. And yet Steve and Gene moving a couch, uh, they have to be able to solve a lot of uh, uh, problems and answer a lot of questions like where is the center of gravity uh, around which axis do you rotate to get through a narrow doorway or to get down a winding narrow staircase who goes first and which direction do they face? And the kind of amazing answer is that you don't need consultants or focus groups. Uh, you know, just by lifting the couch, uh, they will quickly generate answers to those questions just by trial and error and feedback. But there are all these things that we as leaders can do to make it very difficult for Steve and Gene to solve the problem. Uh, we can turn off all the lights, uh, which makes the work more dangerous. So it will take longer. Um, you know, we'll maybe damage the furniture. Uh, or we can turn on a lot of background noise or like a, uh, like a fire alarm. Uh, or we can put someone in between them uh, that prevents Steve and Gene from talking directly to each other. Uh, and so uh, or we may require, you know, both of them have lawyers present or they have to go through work orders or tickets. And so all of these things make it far more difficult, uh, maybe even hopeless for Steve and Gene to actually solve the problem at hand. And what we find, at least in software, is that There are all these things that we have done, like separate the developers from the operations people, from the business people, that are like that third example where we make it impossible for Steve Steve and Gene to sit side by side and solve a problem together. So it's really a metaphor for joint cognition, joint problem solving, and so forth. And the same thing applies in manufacturing, engine design, building safety culture. Uh, Leaders uh, make it either make it possible for people to do their work easily and well, or they uh, somehow sabotage, uh, the Steve's and jeans and their
0: organizations to do, do their work easily and well. Uh, how am I doing? Doing great. Great. I <laughs> totally get it.
2: Uh, and then how do I know if I'm doing it right in the beginning? How do I know if I'm right?
3: <laughs> yeah. You know, it reminds me back when I was at that uh, trip, we had this problem, uh, between at our end of quarter close process, uh, it was uh, one of the problems was that uh, that we'd have these daily sales reports and the goal, you know, the big question that we had to ask was, will we make the revenue number for the quarter? And the problem is that there was all this uh, confusion and uh, sometimes frustration between the order administration and sales because uh, maybe some of the numbers weren't being reported properly or sometimes it wasn't, you know, and we all want to ask, whose fault is it? And it was such a rewarding experience to work with uh, it was the director of sales and the director of uh, operations to figure out what was going wrong. And really, it took sales and order administration to work side by side to figure out you know, um, what was actually going wrong. Was it that uh, the order was in but was, uh, didn't have all the complete information from the customer, or was the uh, order actually not in <laughs> and was actually being inaccurately reported for the sales report? And I think this was an example where – uh, before, uh, order administration sales were on different ends of the couch but not allowed to talk to each other. And when you get them in the same room, can actually work through the intricacies of this, you know, great things can happen. And so I think a great uh, question to ask is to your uh, staff is, can you and your team do their work easily and well? And that should cascade all the way down the organization. Uh, I surely, just, I'm hoping this resonates with your own experiences in your own illustrious career.
2: Uh, I wouldn't call it illustrious. I'd call it uh, dirty and broken,
0: uh, needing of a rewire.
2: So, is this? How does this differ from some of the other buzzwords? You yeah. Know? It sounds like we're hitting some of the other buzzwords.
0: Yeah, I, I, and you
3: know, as a as a scientist, I love this. Uh, Concept called the principle of parsimony, the notion that the goal of science is to explain the most amount of observable phenomena with a fewest number of principles, uh, confirm deeply held intuitions, and reveal surprising insights. And so some of the buzzwords that uh, we encounter in our journey, this is Steve and me, uh, in the technology space, you might hear about Lean or DevOps or Agile, and you might hear about you know, the system and lean or safety culture. And as I had mentioned before, you know, we think these are all incomplete expressions of a far greater whole. So what's the simpler uh, explanation? And we're saying that whenever you see a great organization and whenever you look at a transformation, uh, what we are stating is that there's only three mechanisms of performance to get there. Uh, you have to slowify. So uh, that's a term we made up to say you have to slow down to speed up. And interestingly, there's just no one single word in English uh, that articulates that one concept. So there's a lot of adages, like "you got to stop sign, to sharpen the saw." Um, you know, this notion that you have to make a short-term investment for a longer-term gain. So that's slowified. So we have to say, is uh, there a word the in mechanism-
2: Korean for that, or Japanese, no. or Chinese, or in another language? You're making fun of English, so let's bash the. Other-
3: <laughs> I don't. Oh, no, exactly. The Germans have one interesting They It's called verbesserum <laughs> that you say uh, embodied that there should be one in Japanese, but I, I don't know what that is. In fact, I will take the
0: action to go find out. That uh, is a fascinating question.
3: Uh,
2: it's kind of strange that the Germans have a word for it. The Germans <laughs> have a lot of really weird words for stuff. Um, Absolutely. You like the uh, so fraud and shoy, 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 Uh Oh, a
3: great one. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah.
2: Schneider uh, Freud. <laughs> yeah, fra- I don't know how to say it correctly, but just the idea that I like it when other people fail. Um, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have made up a word for that, but those damn Germans, they engineer everything. Oh, so. uh, yes. So the right.
3: Germans have a concept for that. Yeah, so that's the first one about slowification. So yeah, I think the way we recognize it as leaders is that whenever you see someone doing something, uh, magnificent in highly consequential, high risk uh, environments where you can't undo, you can't uh, just undo a mistake. Uh, you know they have to have made an investment in planning and practice. It's just you know simple logic. They, if you can't learn in those uh, high out cost environments, you have to practice and plan for it. So James that's all about sort of. Have yeah. you ever
2: read any James Michener? He wrote <laughs> uh, Taipan and uh, Gaijin and some of the great books that were turned into miniseries. He wrote one called Space, and in that oh, yeah. he describes how NASA figured out how to rendezvous two orbiting objects. And the way to do it is the one that's the furthest away, I guess, from Earth slows down. And mm-hmm. but because of that, it falls into the correct orbit, and they didn't call it slowification, but in the book, it describes people being shocked that the way to succeed was to go slower, or the way to do something yeah. was to slow down. You should read that and try to I don't know, it just seems like a good uh James Esque description of what you're talking about.
0: In fact, I loved the book Space, I must have read it 20 years
3: ago, and uh, Gene Kranz is someone we actually feature in the book, and his relentless insistence that uh, we slowify, uh, you know, the notion that uh, they had something called uh, Gene Kranz, the uh, famous um, mission controller of the US space program after Apollo 13, now famous, famous for his uh, contribution to Apollo 13, Now, he had this ritual called uh, Resolving the Funnies, that at the end of each shift, Uh, They had to be able to explain every anomaly uh, so that they could confirm that they actually understood how the world worked. And if they couldn't, uh, you know, uh, they couldn't close out the shift. I mean, it's just this incredible assistance, as you said, slow flying to make sure that, you know, when people's lives are on the lines and when you only have a certain number of shots to make it to the moon and return them safely to the Earth, right, slowification was one of the core values uh, of that era of NASA. Absolutely right.
2: And I also think that for us business people, entrepreneurs, at some point we need to be told that fast growth is not good, and that sometimes you're better growing a little slower, and maybe you ought to slow the damn thing down and grow and just catch up with yourself. I I did that, Gene. I got my ass so far ahead of my skis one time, and uh, you know, if I had taken it slow, you know, we would have done better. We were. The business was measured in locations, and we went two, six, 12, 29, 89. you know over that's a year <laughs> count by year. two, six, I think, wait, maybe two, 6, thirteen, twenty-nine, eighty-nine. 29, 89. I think is what we did. And boy, that 29 to 89
0: kicked my butt And I think the lesson is that uh, had you taken some time
3: out of that adage, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Sometimes that upfront investment
0: in uh, ironing out those uh, uh, problems ahead of time pays off in spades for years to come. Yep.
2: All right. Anything special about simplification? I kind of know that word better. Uh, what are you referring to?
3: Yeah. So uh, slow fine is all about moving the toughest problem solving before uh, we get into performance. Simplification is actually changing the problem so they are actually simpler to solve. So the goal here is that we can take highly uh, intertwined uh, systems that are highly coupled where uh, if we make a small mistake in one area of the system, it cascades out and causes global you know, you know, catastrophe. So the goal is to divide up problems uh, so that uh, it's safer to make changes um, and amazingly, it allows independence of action. It allows teams to actually work on things simultaneously in parallel. And so, one of my favorite examples of this was uh, the growth of Amazon in the early 2000s. So, if you can imagine, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the Amazon business uh, was actually pretty simple. They sold books, but then it became music, and then uh, toys, and then clothing. And so, it became a much more complex enterprise, but one of the things that was very surprising was that their ability to ship new releases, deliver capabilities to the customer, slowed down. So they were able to ship new software so that users could see an improved Amazon.com you know, hundreds of times a year in the beginning. And actually grinded to a halt around 2001, 2002, where they could only update uh, their software systems uh, 10 times a year could actually get anything done. They were stuck just like uh, the telco was with the uh, trying to get a checkbox uh, presented to their customers. This kind of crazy situation came out where uh, the Amazon CTO, the chief technology officer said uh, he described this absurd situation where the Amazon digital teams that's like Kindle, Amazon Music, Amazon Video, they were required Uh, in order to fulfill an order to have the customer's shipping address. In other words, a customer, even though they wanted to order um, uh, a piece of digital music, would have to put in uh, the shipping address. (laughs) And so uh, everyone knew that this wasn't ideal, uh, but it required the digital teams to go to 60 different other teams and say, could you please change the ordering pipeline? To which they uh, would always hear, no, uh, it wasn't in our budget. Uh, Sorry, you're stuck. And so, this is what led to the famous Jeff Bezos memo. Uh, then CEO of Amazon, who uh, described the need to move to two pizza teams, where uh, no teams could be larger than could be fed by two pizzas, and each of them must be able to independently deliver value to their customers, you know, without communicating, coordinating with anyone else. And so, you know, over the next uh, decade, they went on from. Being able to do only ten deployments and software changes a year to doing one hundred thirty-six thousand changes per day. So for me, this is just an incredible example of like unleashing agility and distributed problem solving uh, where there wasn't one before. Uh, does that resonate with you?
2: Yeah, that's a great example, and I think I almost remember when that happened. It seems. Uh, You know, I've been buying from Amazon since day one, and it seems like 20 years ago, there was a time where it just didn't work as well for a while. Uh, Yeah.
0: But, uh. In fact, there might be a time when you, like me, went to Amazon and suddenly it sort of looks different. Like, uh, every
3: page element sort of started coming on, like in parallel that a whole bunch of new features started are showing up, all of that. Was because of these changes that they made at Amazon to simplify the system that uh, unleashed uh, the developers'
0: uh, ability to do great things for customers. All right, and do we need to discuss amplification?
3: Yeah, amplification is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, so, this is the need for leaders to pick up even weak signals of failure and decisively act upon them uh so they can better prevent bad things from happening or uh better yet enable quicker detection and recovery and, and for me one of the big aha moments in writing the book was the uh, southwest airlines uh holiday crisis where now uh, because of uh winter storm elliott uh uh, most airlines had to cancel thousands of flights, but most airlines resumed, uh, were able to resume normal operations, you know, within days, whereas Southwest Airlines, uh, it, it got worse. And the reason, uh, as written about in the business press, was because of their crew scheduling system that uh, at the end of each day, uh, because of the software that ran uh, Southwest Airlines, the pilots would have to call like a 800 number. Uh, the crew scheduling department to let them know that they're not in uh, their scheduled place and they would have to be on hold for a half hour, hours. Sometimes uh, one report was 20 plus hours being on hold. And so when you couldn't input those into the system, when they opened up for operations the next day, none of the planes and crews were where they were supposed to be. So they had to cancel more flights. And so this was an example of when you have a control system that is operating slower than what it's trying to control. And so uh, what amplification does is make sure that we have the right systems, uh, processes in place so we can find even small signals of failure and respond to them to better adapt. So uh, this reminds me of things like the OODA loop, uh, the ability to uh, uh, outmaneuver your competitors, the the ability to, uh, like in the startup, out-experiment your competition. And so
0: amplification is a key part of that.
2: All right. And when you put the three together, the, the win that you talk about, what kind of a result can we hope for? Is that, is the best example, Amazon going from 10 a year to 138,000 a day? Is that, that That's not going to happen for me.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great one. I, I think I can say very simply what, uh, what great things can happen. uh, The first one is around uh, slow vacations. and we take a lot of work and tough problem solving that we're doing when it matters the most, and we're somehow able to shift them into planning and preparation so that we are better prepared for when inopportune things happen. So that's one element. The second uh, thing that can happen is we take problems that are just very hairy, complex, highly coupled, and we can divide them up so that they are safer to do. So Amazon's a great example of that. Uh, Setting up... uh, clear flows of work, like in the Toyota production system, uh, where you can uh, be more agile, be more resilient. That's another example of simplification, uh, where work is safer to do, and we can fully uh, use everyone's problem-solving capabilities as opposed to being stuck, like Amazon was, as you just mentioned. And then amplification is that when people need help, when there are weak signals of failure, we go from a system where uh, that somehow we Constrained or extinguished you know, the ability to detect these weak signals of failure, uh, leaders uh, can put attention on them, uh, put the best people to work on them and uh, not just deflect it, but also, you know, remove it as a, even a, a potential risk. So uh, I think those are the three things that we see in any type of transformation as we go from, you know, low performing to higher
0: performing.
2: All right. Gene, we're about out of time. Is there anything that I haven't asked that we need to talk about? Did we get the most important stuff? I think so, yeah. I think
3: the main thing is, uh, regardless of what vocation we're in, regardless of what functional specialty, regardless of what industry we are competing in, there's really these three mechanisms of performance. Slowify, simplify, and amplify. And I uh, just gives leaders a language that uh, they can use to describe what's going wrong and, more importantly, what they can do about it.
2: How do we get a copy? find out more about you? follow online.
3: Ah, that's great. Just so uh, just Google Wiring the winning organization and uh, you will find that book in your favorite retailers of choice.
2: Fantastic. And the best website for you, it Revolution
3: uh, yeah, com uh, it's about uh, helping technology leaders succeed as well as their organizations.
2: Fantastic. Gene, thank you so much. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back. We'd love to have you back one day and talk just Tripwire for the whole show. We need to hear that story.
3: Anytime. It would be my pleasure. And keep up the great work. And I look forward to our next interaction.
2: Likewise. We're out of time for today, but you know what we do. That's right. We come back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Go make a million dollars. Bye now.